Hello, and welcome to the Aseret Podcast, where we learn about character, kindness, wisdom, and values from living examples of inspiring people. In this world, no human being is created alone. No human being is an island. We need others. Some are extroverted, some introverted, but no one, with maybe exceptional exceptions, can live a solitary life. No matter how independent we may feel we are, we come into this world, as our guest Lori Palotnik explains, as completely helpless. We can only survive with the love and care of others. Rabbi Saxetzel points out that the first time it says lotov, or not good in our Torah, is in the context of Adam not having a life partner, someone to live and love and grow with. So God makes Chava, Eve, the partnership of marriage, of a commitment to build a life and a world and generations with another, can teach us so much about the sacredness and devotion needed in all good and thriving relationships. The key underlying ingredient in close relationships is loyalty and trust, the foundation when without, nothing else can stand. In this episode, we learn about the debate of Lotin Af, do not commit adultery. Committing adultery is the archetypal act representing the loss of trust, safety, loyalty, and devotion that is needed to fuel loving relationships. With passion and wisdom, Lori helps us understand the significance of this foundational debate with full, sincere, and total effort, the relationships that build homes, communities in the world. We will also learn in the process how to love others in a deep and practical way. We will see how loyalty to God and to others go hand in hand in this world, and how both the divine and human relationships have so much to teach each other. Lori Palotnik is the founding director of Momentum, formerly JWRP. She is a world-renowned Jewish educator, speaker, writer, and media personality who has lectured all over the world. Lori has authored four books, Friday Night and Beyond, Gossip, Remember My Soul, and Turn Your Husband Into Your Soulmate. In 2014, Lori was named one of the 10 women to watch by Jewish Women International in recognition of her contribution to Jewish women throughout the world. Hadassah named Lori one of the most outstanding Jewish American women of our time, and Izzy included Lori in its Global Jewish 100 list for moving Jewish culture forward. In 2020, Lori was selected to light the diaspora torch at the National Ceremony for Israel's 72nd Independence Day. Lori lives with her husband, Rabbi Yaakov Palatnik, in Jerusalem. This episode inspires me to want to work that much harder on the close relationships in my life to make them the best and most loving they can be, just as God wants it. Rabbits and Lori Palatnik, thank you so much for speaking to us today on the Aseret podcast. A pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Okay, so usually I start just by reading the Diber that we're going to speak about today. It's very short. So I'm just going to say, Lotin Af. And what's coming to mind for you today? Recently, you knew that you were going to talk about this. What's been coming to mind for you when I say that? Well, listen, it's, uh, I think people are surprised that not committing adultery is one of the top 10. And it's something that, you know, like the way to remember, like I have a mnemonic device actually to remember the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you're interested in it. Can you teach us? Sure. So how do you remember? Like if you're a Jew and you're on a plane and you're a non-Jews beside you and they're asking you like, so what are those Ten Commandments? So it's good to know them and it's good to know them in order. So I'm going to give you a mnemonic device so that you can hopefully remember everybody listening uh, or watching can remember. And not only you'll remember them in order, but you'll be able to teach them to anybody that you know. You ready? Yes. Okay. So number one, number one is to know there is a God. How do you remember it? There's only one. Number two is not to commit idolatry, not to believe in other powers. How do you remember it? There's not two. Number three is uh, don't take God's name in vain. Oh my God. Okay. (laughs) Number four is keep Shabbat because what's on your Friday night table? Two challahs, two candles. Number four, keep Shabbat. Number five is honor your parents. So how do you remember it? Honor your parents, because if you don't honor your parents, they give you a patch, okay? <laughs> so if you if you want to be more PC, you could say they give you a high five, all right? Okay, so five, honor your parents. Number six is a six shooter, okay? Don't murder. Number seven, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is the seven-year itch. Now, that's a very generational cultural reference. What it's, are you uh, talking Maryland- about? Yeah, I see you're too young. It's a Maryland, anybody my age would go like, oh, seven year itch. It's a Marilyn Monroe movie. It's a classic movie uh, that uh, after seven years, a man gets itchy and that's when he starts to stray. Okay, seven, seven year itch. So how do I give it? How I speak all over the world uh, because I'm the founding director of Momentum and we have brought over 25,000 Jewish 
mothers who are weakly connected to their Jewish identity and Jewish communities. We brought 25,000 of them uh, from 35 countries to Israel for an eight-day transformational experience, and they go back for a one-year follow-up. And we are doing it uh, in partnerships with the partnership with the Israeli government, the Ministry of Diaspora Affairs. So I speak all over the world. And so if I do that reference, not only is generational, it's also very American cultural right. or North American. So and when I'm teaching kids, how am I going to like, what, you know, sometimes I've got teenagers in front of me. What am I going to say? So what I say is number seven. How do you remember number seven? Number seven, I say to kids is you should your parents should only love each other. And when they love each other, it's like heaven on earth, seven heaven, and they remember it. Mm. Okay. So number eight, if you take the number eight, picture it and you turn it on its side. It looks like handcuffs. Don't steal. Okay. Number nine, number nine is a false six. Don't give false testimony. Don't lie. Okay. Number nine is a false six. And number 10 with 10 fingers, don't covet. Don't desire what somebody else has. Don't desire someone else's 10 fingers. No, so 10 fingers don't desire what they have, what they've been given, you know, their possessions, their 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 blessings, okay? Don't covet. Okay, so now, do, now, now say it fast. Give us give Okay, us the... so number one, number one, to know there is a God. How do you remember it? There's only one. Number two, don't believe in other powers. There's not two. Number three, don't take God's name in vain. Oh my God. Number four, keep Shabbat. What's on your Friday night table? Two candles, two kalas. Number five, honor your parents or they give you a patch. Number six is a six shooter. They okay? don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Seven year itch, or your parents should only love each other. Seven, and it's heaven on earth, seven heaven. Number eight, it, you turn it on its side, it looks like handcuffs. Don't steal. And number, number nine is a false six. Don't give false testimony. Don't lie. And number 10, with 10 fingers, don't desire what somebody else has. 10 commandments. Okay. I love that on two levels. Very briefly, I'll, I'll tell you why I love that. Number one, is that I have gotten very much into how to memorize, uh, particularly from Rabbi Rieti. Wow, you can memorize so many things very fast with these with these simanim, these these symbols, these signs. People are not using their memory properly. There's an infinite world of memorization that you can do. Learning the ten is not so hard to do. My other reaction is beautiful. Learn them, but they are not reducible to those. They are. Big, big oh, ideas. Huge. Each, Each one, one of these is a is a course. It's a exactly yeah. it's it's the whole thing. And yeah, and each so, one is a course, but this is a way, a way it's very empowering to in. know that I've got them. So when I say now number seven, you're like, oh, don't commit adultery, which is what yes. we're gonna be talking about today. And so what comes to mind other than the mnemonics? <laughs> so number seven is um number seven's big. It's big, it's really uh, it's talking about really the foundation of the Jewish people because it's talking about the home, what's going on in the home. And maybe we should define what adultery is. So adultery, according to Jewish law, is when uh, a married woman has relations with somebody who is not her husband. So both parties are committing adultery, both the, the man and the woman. Um, and it's, but it's with a married woman. So if a married man has relations with a woman who's not married, it's sexual immorality, it's wrong, but it doesn't, it, it's not this category, it doesn't make the top 10. So why is it that a married woman, when she falls, makes the top 10? And remember, when we say uh, a Sarah to Debrot, we mean that it's, it's really the 10 sayings, they're like chapter headings, and all 613 commandments we, uh, according to our tradition, can fall under those 10, 10 things. So when you have uh, don't commit adultery, it's really a lot of the laws of sexual morality come under that. So why does it make the top 10? Because, and I'm going to generalize, okay? This is a big generalization. Generalize means there are exceptions. But in general, in the probably tens of thousands of families and that we have been involved in over the years in our work in Jewish communal work, in general, when a man falls in a relationship, as long as he's not in love, it, it's a, a physical uh, indiscretion and he has a physical affair. If it's not emotional and it's just physical, you can usually put it back together. My husband is a rabbi. Like we, again, we've worked with many Jewish communities, many Jewish people, many, many couples. 
when it's terrible, but it, it's it's reconcilable. No, it's it's trauma to the family. It's trauma to the marriage. But if you have what to, if he's not in love, like you can and he is ready to make good on it and to humble himself and to um, and everything that goes along with it. It is a crushing trauma to a marriage, but actually it's an opportunity to actually rebuild and to, uh, and we've seen rebuild stronger. We've seen this with help. Uh, when a man is, has emotional infidelity, even if he didn't cross the line physically, I have to say that it is actually more crushing for on a woman's, like uh, from a woman's point of view in a marriage that he's in love with somebody else that he has a he's sharing with her and he's a deep emotional connection and he's like communicating with her and he feels like he's in love that that's very hard to put back together it's much easier if it's physical okay now for a woman uh if a woman falls in terms of like infidelity physical infidelity a married woman it's very very hard to put it back together if the man finds out, it's it's almost impossible to put it back together. So why does it make the top 10? And why is it incumbent upon a married woman? Because if the the mother falls, the, the marriage falls. If the marriage falls, the family falls. The family falls, the community falls. Like it's the Jewish people fall. It's really showing the power of the Jewish woman, the power of the mother. And one of the reasons why momentum focuses on the mother is because she's the strongest influencer of the home in terms of the values, in terms of the direction of the home. In general, there are exceptions. So can you actually tell us the, slo the slogan of, of momentum? Because I think it fits really well here. Can you can you can you start? Yeah, it so out the hashtag us? is it starts with women. Right? It but starts with something women. else. It starts Yeah. So there's something else. So really our theory of change is you inspire a woman, you inspire a family. You inspire enough families, you inspire a community. And if you inspire enough communities, you can change the world. So you see, so if the woman falls, the whole, the whole, uh, the, the, everything falls. Okay. The, the, the house of cards fall. If a man falls, we can, we can, we can usually, again, unless he, it's emotional infidelity, we can usually with help. And even though it's a trauma, we can build it back together. And I'm really generalizing here, really, really generalizing. So that's why it reflects this, this commandment reflects the power and the uh, and and the centrality of the role of the woman in the family, in the community, and ultimately in the world. Wow, and and its relationship with kibud aveim, you know, respecting your parents. We go from some sort of family structure, then we go to lotir tzach, and then we go to which is don't murder, and then we go to lotin af. First of all, you see, if you look at the tablets, okay, so you have one side are all the laws of man to God, and the other side are all the laws of man to man, man being you know, human beings. Yes. So what the question is, what is, and we, we go through our five, which we just taught you. So, so what is Kibbut Aim doing on the side of man to God? Okay. It's like children to parents. Okay. Honor your parents. It should be over on the side of man to man. So is this a bad editing job or is there a reason why it's over there? So why is it over there? Because really the relationship between children and their parents is really the paradigm of the relationship between people and God. So if you can't have love and awe for your parents, don't think you'll be able to have love and awe for, for God. That God gives us parents and not every every creation needs parents. Some people, like some of them are just like they could reproduce on their own and or they, they a lot of in the animal kingdom, I did um, some research on them, on it. There, there are certain animals or birds or fish where they just, you know, they have their babies and they take off. That's it. Some of them stick around, but we human beings, you see, are created in a way where we have these relationships and these relationships, just as God is creator. So, so parents are creator, giving life, just as God gives us life. And just as we, there's accountability to, to God and there is consequences to our actions and that our actions matter and our life has meaning. So too, we, we build this with our parents. So you see, that's why it's over there on man to God. So there, that is another one about the family structure, and we can talk about other er dimensions of family life through that debate. But we're talking about lotinaf, and what we see yeah. when we go when we look together is, and maybe I got, I hope we didn't get this wrong. We have well, it doesn't it doesn't match up the way you're saying because you're saying one matches up to the other. Right, right, right. But if we go, so from it would match up to it would match up to um to idolatry, like don't believe in other gods. Okay, so I did get okay. that right in my research. Right, okay, so, so now so it's the second. So it, 
It connects to Vodazora, which is don't believe in other powers. So why is that? So what what you're speaking about is that there's a tradition that if you look at the the commandments, so if you look at them, imagine them on the tablets. So the one on the top is, is connected to the one on the top. And the second one is connected to the second one on the other tablet. If we're looking at don't commit adultery, which of course we know is number seven. So then we would look over at number two. So number two is don't believe in other powers. Because So what's the connection? Listen, I'm not a great sage and I'm not a Kabbalist. Well, let me read you something I- about that. And then I want you to react to that because they are connected. This idea yeah. of loyalty to God and yeah. loyalty to a partner. And what's the metaphor and the language, in, in, especially in the Nevi'im, actually evokes this, that we are in sort of a, a romantic relationship with God, so to speak. So you see, I just pulled one example that I wanted to read to you and get a reaction from Yirmiyahu, from Jeremiah, about God, about Israel's rebellion. That word, because Israel committed adultery, I sent her off. I gave her a safer krituteha. I gave her a divorce. Um, so this idea, and then the land became defiled. And then it says later again, that us as the Jewish people committed adultery with Evan, a stone, and with eight's wood. So yes, they're connected on this on this tablet, but we also see in the language of Tanakh, there's a, yeah. an inherent connection. So what do you see 100%, there? 100%. But also like... Think about the giving of the Ten Commandments. So we have the whole thing. It says that uh, part. There's a midrash that says that that God took the mountain and put it over the Jewish people, like a chuppah, right? Like a chuppah. That this is now. This is now. We're making a commitment to one another, and it and it speaks about the that God says. Late, he says that I am a jealous God. So what? First of all, God doesn't have feelings, but we anthropomorphize God to understand it. So what do you mean? God's jealous. God has low self-esteem. Okay. No, jealous as in that that we we are in a committed relationship. This is an exclusive relationship. So when God says you committed adultery with stone and you know like and wood like crosses and 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 other other idols, that means we went after other gods, other powers. So it, it's like adultery. It's like you cheated on me. So again, this uh, that God is a, a jealous God. There is jealousy in marriage, which is a positive thing. I am would be upset if this exclusive relationship somehow got damaged. And we draw uh, just like you would put a fence around something that's precious. You had a prized rose bush, you would put a fence around it. You have a Ming vase, you would put it in a in a, a glass cabinet. You wouldn't just leave it out for your grandchildren to you know to trample to to smash over anything that's precious we protect, including our marriages, including relationships. That if your spouse said like, you know, like the the old college gang are getting together and we're going off on a camping trip. And yeah, my my ex-girlfriend is going to be there. But you know, like she's married and I'm married, it'll be fine. If I was the wife, you ain't going nowhere. Okay. So do, do I not trust my husband? Of course, I trust my husband. Do I trust every woman? No, I don't trust every woman. And I shouldn't, we were not supposed to even trust ourselves that under certain circumstances, and we have the laws, it's called the laws of Yehu, the laws of seclusion, that give that my husband is not allowed to be alone in a room with a woman who's not me, who's not, who's not his wife uh, and not his daughter. And um, and if I'm out of town, I'm out of the country. Okay. Like I can't be alone with a man in the same way. If my husband is, you know, out of, out of the city and, or he's not coming, he's not coming home. You can't be in a locked room. So you have all these things like what, like my husband can't be alone in a room with his niece. Okay. Like as if anything's going to happen, of course, nothing's going to happen, but we don't, we we see that you know my husband always uh, reminds me that all the commandments that were given at Har Sinai at Mount Sinai, and all the things like it sounds like the Jerry Springer show. Like if you go to one chapter, it's about like and a man shouldn't do it with his mother, and he shouldn't do it with his aunt, and he shouldn't do it with animals. Like in all these things of sexual morality, he was giving it to to religious Jews. Okay, he was giving it to God fearing Jews. Like he's giving it like today, you would say like he's giving it to like from Jews, like religious Jews. He's giving. So what? Because everybody under certain circumstances can fall. And God forbid, especially in this relationship, because we talked about the consequences of a family falling and what that can do to the community and ultimately to the Jewish people. 
So all the more so that we are extra, extra careful with these laws. And even with these laws, things can happen. My husband built, um, we built together uh, a synagogue in Toronto called the Village Shul. And I remember a rabbi from another city came to see this beautiful building that we built. And uh, and he, my husband gave him a, like a like a tour and they got to his office and the, and the rabbi said, this other rabbi from another city said, where's the window in your in your office door? And he goes, oh, I don't know. There's, so there's no window in the door. And he said, that's a mistake that there should be like you're here in council with people. And like sometimes you're counseling a woman. It's like there should be a window. So you see today and that was many years ago. That was a couple of decades ago. And today, now, a doctor is not allowed to go into like an examining room with a woman unless the nurse is there too. Like if the world has caught on that being alone under certain circumstances creates an atmosphere where people can fall. That according to the, the studies that men who travel for business have a higher, there's a higher percentage of them that can mess up physically with somebody who he's not married to because he just had a fight with her and now he's on the road. And then like the, the stewardess or the woman, you know, at the bar or at the conference. And before you know it, something happens. Like it can happen. It can happen. It can happen to some of the greatest people. Everybody makes mistakes, but the consequences of this mistake of crossing this line are so dire. And there's usually, and who really holds that who damaged, who's damaged the most the kids. Wow. And you it's um the fallout, the reverberation of this mistake um goes on and on and sometimes for generations. Well, I don't know if you meant to do that, but looking at the deber of Lotin Af from the perspective of the second deber which you're talking about which is loyalty to God, real unwavering loyalty. It says don't don't worship other gods because I'm a jealous god and what's going to happen? I'm going to visit the the avo and the sin of the of the of the parents onto the kids it's going to last multiple generations this wow, damage wow. can last multiple generations but if you get this right if you get loyalty right yes we're talking about god here but we're also talking about its parallel in lotina if you get this right you are going to create generations of love chesed and rashi says basically 500 times more love or something like that, you're going to create love into forever, basically forever. And that's what Rabbi Hawk really said to me when I was getting married. He said that the most important, you want to change the world, look at a gen you, three generations, four generations later, you could have hundreds of thousands of descendants. And that's only in three generations, go a thousand and it's you know a billion people. You can't even calculate. And so this loyalty thing, I think looking at Lotinaf, which is only two words, really we should be looking at the second deber and understanding the intergenerational existential severity of breaking that bond and breaking that loyalty and how it affects the, the generation. So I think that might be one of the big things that, that we can do uh, to look at this. So uh, Rabbi Hawk was very wise. First of all, he's very wise. Uh, he's a special, special person. And you see that the choices we make are not just for now, but they're for generations. The choice you made to become an educated, empowered Jew and who you married is, you know, and I always say to the women on the momentum trips, where you send your kids to school is not just who your kids will be, it's who your grandchildren will be. You're setting them on a course of socialization and, and values. And people can sometimes rise above it or veer off or veer in, but you see like the choices, you know, have consequences. So the other thing I wanted to say also, which is connecting what, you know, like not to commit adultery and also uh, don't believe in other powers and idolatry. You know, people sometimes ask me like whether I'm speaking on a panel or conferences or anything, what is, what's the secret to your success? So I always sum it up this way. I'm all in. I'm all in. I believe that's the secret to success, whether it's your career or your profession or your, your, your passion of volunteer work. And it's also relationships and marriage. None of our parents, and for sure none of our grandparents, walked up the aisle, okay, walked to the chuppah thinking like, well, if it doesn't work out, we can always get divorced. This is the generation that, you know, when I grew up, I'm a lot older than you are. Uh, when I grew up in Toronto, uh, I went to public school. 
And there was one kid in my class, like you're with the same kids, right? Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. There was one kid in my class and he was from the divorced family. Today, I was living in Denver, Colorado years ago. And I remember I was learning with this, this woman and I remember she went off and she had this like, I don't know, I think she turned 50 and she's going to go off on this trip for herself and like empowering. She came back and I saw her at a function and I said, and I remember I was learning with her daughter and her friends too, also in like a, a teen group. And I said to her, like, how was your trip? How are you doing? She goes, oh, I decided to get divorced. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I said, like, how, how are your kids doing? Almost every time when I ask people who are getting divorced, and unfortunately, this is constant, constant, constant. Whenever I ask them, like, how are your kids doing? You know what they answer? What do you think they answer? Part of me thinks they'll say they're just fine just to say that, but I also think they're going to say terrible. No, they almost always say, oh, they're doing pretty well. They're, yeah, doing, they're doing good. pretty well. Yeah. They're, they're, and I want to scream at them. No, they're not. Okay. Yeah. No, they're not. I know people whose parents after 50 years or 40 years get divorced, like adult people, adults who have, are married and have children. Imagine, I know your parents, they're not getting divorced. They love each other. Like, okay, they're all in. Imagine, God forbid they got divorced. You're thinking like, oh, but I'm married and I've got, it's a trauma a trauma to the family, even if you're an adult. I have, there's something called the empty nest syndrome, which is our peers now, after their kids grow and they get married, after the last kid gets married, they get divorced. And they think like, what's the big deal? Like we stayed together for the kids and everybody got married. You just threw a bomb into your family. Not just your children now, now it's your grandchildren, okay? You just do an A-bomb into your family. And you think like, again, our choices have consequences. Our, our choices have consequences. So this exclusive relationship that God says he, he, we're in with him, we're all in. He says, I'm all in with you, okay? And we're going to go through some rough times. And we're going to go up and down. And we're going to go through stuff, okay? But we're all in. In a marriage, every marriage goes through ups and downs. Everyone, even the rabbi's marriages, ups and downs. But if you're all in, okay, we're going to get through this together. And let's use this as a springboard to, to get closer. And you have no idea, nobody knows when they walk to the chuppah what is going to happen. No, I, I say to women all the time, did you have any idea? Okay, Nobody had any idea. And if we would have been told, we probably wouldn't have done it. Like you have no idea what it's like to have children until you're in it. And then when you have teenagers, you're like, oh my God, like somebody would have told you, you wouldn't do it. But once you're all in, it's like, I'm all in. We're going to see this through. We're going to use this as an opportunity to grow. God is trying to squeeze the potential out of us. And we have the canvas of our life, and we have no idea what God is going to throw at it. So what do we do? Who are we? We're framers. We can frame it. So we can either see, you know, I have to tell you years ago, I had a video blog that I had on ish.com and it was called Lori Almost Live. And it's like this little three minute thing. I did hundreds of them. All right. Like on different thoughts and different ideas. And people could comment on them. You know, people could go on and say, I agree, I disagree. And I would watch sometimes the comments and people agree, people like it, people don't like it. They fight with each other. I can count on one hand how many times I actually replied and, and said something myself. One time, I don't remember what it was. It was like I said something about something. And a woman wrote, nice for you to say, Lori, because your life is perfect. If you had our lives, maybe you wouldn't say that. I wrote back, excuse me, I have challenges in every aspect of my life, just like you, health, wealth, relationships, but I choose to see them as God's opportunity for me to grow. You are blaming, complaining, and woe is me. That's the difference between you and me. The canvas might look the same, but the frame is different. So when a frame on a piece of art can enhance the art, Okay, can make the picture beautiful and or it can ruin it. The wrong frame literally can ruin the picture. We're framers. We we have no control over what God throws at our canvas, but we can frame it. This is could be my opportunity for growth. This too is for the good. We could see this as a springboard to my greatness, or we can see it as being like, like, why does everything happen to me? And it's life is no fair and I don't deserve it, and et cetera, et cetera. This is an un a relentless focus on what's important and doing the right thing basically at all costs. And I, when I'm working with clients, 
the number one word that I use, and it's a it's a very Jewish word, is commitment. We because if you're gonna make changes that I'm that I have the expectations that you can make, and I work with very you know pretty people that are very severely struggling, especially with OCD, their their world is being run by their emotions. Their their brain is telling them to do things, not do things, and uh, saving some saving themselves from dangers all over the world, all over the place. They're worried that if they don't do this thing, this thing's gonna happen. If you commit to changing, and you like single-mindedly commit to it, you can, yes, there's going to be emotional baggage that comes up when you've committed to a, a marriage and you're feeling really frustrated and angry and, and alone and lost and sad. Tons of things are going to come up to the surface. The emotional pain could be very high, but you're focused and you're firm on what you need to do. And it cuts through everything. It's the, it slices right through all the baggage and says, I know I'm going to deal with this. So I'm not going to run away from my problems because these things are coming up. And I, that number one word, commitment and loyalty, is I just think can save people. I just think it can save people. But you've mentioned, Lori, that there is sometimes, you said the word, I think, in one of your interviews, if it's killing you, you can leave. So, of course, you're not saying that there's never an exception to this Listen, breaking of a bond. One of the 613 commandments is talks about divorce, that right. if it is time for divorce, that a man gives his wife a get and and they get divorced. There are times to get divorced. So when do you get divorced? When do you get divorced? So you could, you had a little bit of a spoiler alert, but um, I heard Rabbi Nachum Braverman in Los Angeles speak about this, and and he gave the following mashal, the following metaphor. So he said he compared divorce to an amputation. Your hand hurts. Do you cut it off? No. It really hurts. Do you cut it off? No. It hurts so much you can't sleep at night. Do you cut it off? No. But when it's turning green and the green is going up your arms. Do you cut it off? Yes. Do you and get how- divorced when marriage is hard? No. It's really hard. No. You can't sleep at night. It's so hard. No. But when it's killing you, that's when you get divorced. Most of the studies show that people who hang in there and don't just default to divorce, again, our parents and grandparents didn't, okay? Sometimes to a fault because it was socially unacceptable that some of these people should have gotten divorced. But- the social um, implication, it was such a taboo back then, generationally, that it helped keep you in marriage. The social pressure to get married and to stay married and to work at your marriage is a good social pressure. But there are times to get divorced. So when it's not your default, and the studies show, if you hang in there, you can actually get through it. And you can, and we've seen it, come out even stronger. But what people do today is like, you know, I, the story I told about the woman who uh, in Denver who said, like, she's getting divorced. How are your, how, I said, how's your daughter doing? She goes, oh, she's doing fine. So she, she actually said to me, she's doing fine because now she's like all her friends. Okay, and I thought about the group of five girls that I was teaching with her daughter being one of them. She was the only one from a, everybody was from a divorced home except for her. She goes, now she's like all her friends. So this, what I grew up with is the one boy in the class who's from the divorced home. So again, there are times that some of these people in the class should have gotten divorced, okay, but because it was a social taboo. But most of the time, if you're all in and you hang in there and you get the right help and you're committed to each other and we're going to get through this and we can use it to come out stronger, you, you, can, you can come out of it. Like you really can. You can stay married. And staying married doesn't mean every day is candy floss and, and balloons and lollipops. But you're building something. I'm t- I was I was explaining to uh, you know my our son just got married, and so we had uh, traditionally after in a Jewish uh, traditional community when two people get married. So afterwards they don't run at, uh, on a honeymoon. They don't run away. They there are seven days. It's called Sheva Brachot, and there's sort of like gatherings and parties and blessings that are given every day. And it's really a nice transition for them to be surrounded by their community and family during this transition. And for also for us, you know, that, that uh, we're transitioning and letting them go. And so people spoke about different things. And one of the things I talked about was, you know, we mentioned earlier about Harsinai, about Mount Sinai, that it really was like these mountains that we climb. There's no, there's a reason why God gave the, the Torah on the top of a mountain and these mountains that we climb in life, you know, I didn't come from a traditional background and when you start to make uh, choices in life towards observance, the beginning, it's almost like climbing a mountain. It's like you're making like big strides, like no more shrimp and no more TV on Shabbat. And like, and you're making these big strides. And as you get up the mountain, 
it's just like mountain climbing. It's getting steeper and it's getting more subtle and you're still climbing. Like we're all climbing to our potential and we're all climbing to our relationship with God. The steps are smaller but they're so, but but they're deep and they're really refining. But we can't forget because sometimes we can get frustrated, like you know, like oh, there's so much to do and that and so much more to know, and and there's always something. Don't forget to look back and see how far you've come, and take pleasure how far you've come. Because our rabbi, Rabbi Noah Weinberg of Blessed Memory, he always said that pleasure is the fuel in order to handle the pain. Because there's going to be pain in life. There's pain in marriage. There's pain in in uh, raising children. There's pain in in our work in the community. There's our there's pain in in realizing our potential. What are you going to? It's your choice what you focus on. Are you going to focus on the pain or the pleasure? And if you don't take a lot of pleasure, you won't be able to handle the pain. So don't forget in these relationships. And here we're talking about marriage because we're talking about adultery. So don't forget to take a lot of pleasure. Look how far you've come. And if the days where you have a downer day or you have an off day or you're having a fight, if they stand out, or like when we're talking about parenting, if the day you like you had a day where you lost your temper with your kids or you said the wrong thing, if those days stand out, my mother always taught me, you're doing great. But if the happy days stand out, you're not doing so great. It's like, oh, we wow, it's been so long since we had such a joyful day. That's not good. Okay. But if you had an off day and you're don't beat yourself up, okay. Everybody, everybody makes mistakes. And sometimes life is three steps forward and two steps back, but at least you're up a step. So, but you should take pleasure in your growth. You should take pleasure like all the things that you've gone through. You should take pleasure in the strides. Yes, the mountain is going to get steeper as we get up the mountain. Keep going. Okay, because there's a goal at the top. It's your potential. It's realizing your potential in this world. It's having the deepest relationship with God. It's it's contributing to God's world in the way that you uniquely can, because everybody has their own their piece of the puzzle to complete the picture. So take a lot of pleasure and 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 keep climbing. I'm into that, and I want to ask you because we, these gilui arayos. These are, we've talked about a bit about just the act of cheating. We know that it relates to all sort of sexual acts, but the, the the biggest one is is cheating. We know that that's one of three in Judaism, like cardinal, very 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 serious stuff: idolatry, adultery, and murder. And you you you've basically said, and I and I think the connection between, in a way, mur- not murdering and and this lotin af is that, look, this is this is the big leagues. This is a big big decision. It's a big decision for families. And also, maybe that's the metric. If it's killing you, if God forbid the relationship is killing you, no one's saying you have to live a life of of suffering and abuse and pain, et cetera, et cetera. But, but it is very, very weighty. You got to think about it on a deep level, just like you would c- contemplate acts of ki- killing because it can kill Wait, generations. And not just that, but when there is divorce or when there is this shattering trauma of adultery in a marriage, anybody who's gone through a divorce, something died. You literally go through mourning, just like the stages of mourning when somebody actually physically dies. You mourn a relationship. You mourn what the potential of this was. Like you really go through all this like denial and like an anger and 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 until you get to acceptance. So and it's and and it's it's normal. It's healthy to to mourn a relationship. Or sometimes you have to do it like when you're dating and and you're engaged and the engagement breaks. Okay, like you do have you can't just jump into another relationship. It's not just time. Like you have to go through the stage. You're mourning something that was that no longer is. So when it is adultery, you cause the the break. Okay, like that act that choice caused the break. It 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 is the death of a relationship. And then there was mourning that happens, but it was it was something that when it's when you say it's akin to murder, that somebody somebody killed this relationship. And in your experience, what patterns serve as the major core, deep psychological, emotional, and social wounds that might lead to it? What have you noticed when this does happen, when that line is crossed? What what have you noticed are underlying issues in relationships? Not to ever justify, there's no justification for the action, the behavior itself is is a no-go just like killing there's no just you can but you can understand motives what are motives that you've noticed that you've heard you know it is husband there is nothing i'm i'm not going to be so i don't know so brazen or chutzpah to say oh it's one two three these are the things that cause it it it's in my experience every relationship is unique 
every relationship has its complexities. You know, you grow up and you have your baggage and then you marry somebody who brings their baggage into the relationship. But then you open up your bags after the chuppah and see if your baggage can live together. Everybody has things that, you know, you're a result of the way you were raised and your parents, the stuff that they gave you was a result of their parents. It's zelopashut. This is not simple. It's very, very complicated. And every relationship is unique. But the one thing I would want to tell people so strongly, don't wait for a crisis to get help. When does a man start getting healthy and and dieting? Like when does he when does he eat healthy and when does he start working out? When he's overweight, completely overweight and or danger after from the his doctor. heart attack. Okay, I, it's right. after the heart attack that the guy finally okay he had waited for a crisis in order to do something. So I always tell women, don't wait for a crisis before you come to me. I'm not a marriage counselor. Okay. I'm a rabbi's wife. I think I have some wisdom. I have some with, you know, uh, some experience. I think I can help you, but, but I'm not a marriage counselor. So, and sometimes when you wait for, uh, you wait to get help until there's a crisis, it's very hard to put it back together. So there was a woman who, uh, after class one day said to me, like, can we get together for coffee this week? And usually that means, Either I just realized I'm not really Jewish or my husband's having an affair. Those are the number one and number two reasons to have coffee with me. Okay. You want to be me? So here we are. We meet at Starbucks and we're moving along and she, and we're waiting, you know, for our drink to give our drink order. And she says to me, you know, I just want to tell you it's, it's my marriage. And I'm like, okay. And, and she said, but it's not a crisis. I'm like, oh, I'm so relieved. I said, you know, some people wait, like they wait for a crisis. I'm so happy you're reaching out now. We make our drink orders. We sit down. I go, okay, what's going on? She said, uh, we haven't been intimate in three years and he wants a divorce. I had to break the news to her. This is called a crisis, okay? Like, this is a crisis. It was too late for them. It was too late. They was like, they so veered off course. So what's wrong with being a little bit off, okay? Like every marriage, like what's wrong with being a little bit off? You know, if the space shuttle takes off and it's just a little bit off, it misses the, the stratosphere. It's, it's in a different solar system. Because a little bit off becomes a lot off. So I know somebody who, uh, a friend of mine, her parents are divorced. And she married a guy whose parents are divorced. And she knew, because she's a smart cookie, that the chances of their marriage working are slim. Okay? Because that's another thing. Like people think, oh, I get divorced and it's like my kids are fine. Okay? You just exponentially increase the chances that they're going to get divorced. So... And if somebody who comes from a divorced family marries somebody from a divorced family, the chances, there's more of a chance that they're going to get divorced than they're going to stay married in the long run. Why? Because they didn't have good role models. Like you need role models in order to like know how to make a marriage work, how to fight, how to love, et cetera. So what did she do? She's so smart. They got marriage counseling from week one. Wow. Okay. And it wasn't because something was going wrong. It was like preventative. Okay. Okay. It was like, we're going to not going to wait for a crisis. We're going to check in constantly because we want this to work. And they're still happily married today. And it's not easy. It's not an easy marriage because they're coming from families where they don't have the role models because you're dealing with all the Mishigas of, you know, the craziness of parents and then marrying somebody else and then divorcing again. Some of these people, their parents have been married three or four times and they're dealing with stepchildren and, and step like and, and siblings. Like it is like some of these wedding invitations can get very complicated, you know, and what happens like, because it's not simple today. So you see that all of this, all of this, you can just drive it down and you can like, you can really laser focus on the, the I, I tell people that your marriage is the hub of the wheel of your life. Everything else are the spokes, your kids, your, your profession, your work in the community, your spirituality. This is the core relationship. This is the relationship. And the mistake that some people make is this is the relationship. And then the kids come and then that relationship gets bumped down the totem pole instead of it being the primary relationship. There's nothing that gives our kids a greater foundation emotionally and psychologically to build a life for themselves than to their parents are happily married. And I remember telling my kids, you know, like you don't appreciate how, what a blessing it is that Ima and Abba, mom and dad, are happily married. And they didn't realize it until they went off into the world and went off to whether it's college or seminary, yeshiva, like post high school. And they started meeting people who come from very complicated homes and unhappy homes. And even if the parents are not divorced, how many of them are happily married? And that leads me to my last question about this, which is we've talked a lot about the negative side. 
but these are core values. These, these, these 10 commandments are core values. And behind low T and F is figure out how to love, figure out how to love loyally, deeply in the, in the best way possible. And I want you to share with us your three-part love series a little bit here to, to close this interview off, to build that love, to create that foundation. So talk to us about that. Okay. So thank you. So one of the things that, you know, one of the tools I use, if a couple comes to me, they're having trouble in their marriage. I sometimes I'll give them two pieces of paper and I, and I'll say, let's define our terms. Okay. Like you want to be happy. What's happy. You want to be successful. What's successful. The Torah is very big. You must define your terms. So I say to them, okay, so let's, uh, you write down your, I tell the woman, you write down your definition of love and your definition of marriage. And I tell the guy the same thing. So she writes, love is marriage is he does the same thing. So then they give me their two pieces of paper. And what do I see? two different definitions. Hello, we're in this together and we want to achieve something together, yet we define what we're in together differently. So at the very minimum, you have to have a mutual definition of what we're in, in terms of love. So love, uh, there's three definitions to, to, to love, according to Judaism. So, and it's from three different rabbis. Okay. So first from Rabbi Noah Kweinberg of Blessed Beverly. So he says, love is the emotion that you feel when you focus in on the virtues of another person and you identify them with those virtues. That's love. Right? Everybody's got good. Everybody's got stuff. Love is, it's not that you're blind to their negative qualities and their challenging qualities. Like who knows your, your kids' qual good qualities better than you? No one. Who knows your kids' stuff better than you? No one. But if you ask me about my kids, I'm like, oh, my Shoshana, my Zev, my emotion. I'm not just a bragging Jewish mother. That's how I see them, even though I'm completely cognizant of the fact that they have challenging and stuff. And that's work. That's real work. It's, it's a choice. Love is a choice. Mm -hmm. What's the choice? Do I focus in on their goodness, their virtues, or their stuff? It's a choice. If I focus on my husband's stuff, I won't feel love. If I focus on his goodness, I will. It's really that simple. And that's an antidote to, you know, looking at Gottman's, you know, what, what creates in, in couples therapy, what creates the toxicity, contempt, defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism. There's a place to discuss, as you're mentioning, flaws, issues, but that your default, if your default lens is I'm focusing on the virtue. So that's number one. That's yeah, number, so number one. one. That's number one. So the second one is from Rabbi Noah Orlerick, who says that, love is what's important to you is important to me. What's important to you is important to me. So first of all, you have to know what's important to the other person. So, so that, 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 then you can get into the whole thing of the love languages. Okay. For some people, like you're, you're thinking like, of course, I love that person. That person's not feeling loved. Why? Because you're speaking different languages. So the five love languages of, of, you know, like of whether it's gifts or, or time together or words of words of affirmation and all the different things. So you have to know, you have to speak their language. So what's important to you is important to me. And the third definition is from Rabbi Dessler in his work, A Strive for Truth. And he asked the Jewish philosophical question, does loving lead to giving or does giving lead to loving? I love you, so I give to you, or the more I give to you, the more I love you. And the Jewish answer is the more you give, the more you love. And that's why babies are born helpless. As we talked about in the animal kingdom, not only some babies are abandoned by animals when they're born, but some, you know, a deer has a fawn, it's a little shaky, nurses a little bit, and then eventually, and then very quickly goes, has a life. So I don't know how you felt when they handed you your first child, okay, in the hospital, but it's overwhelming how helpless they are, how tiny and how helpless. And why does God make it that way? So you'll give and you'll give and you'll give and you'll give. And what do you get back for the first few months? Sleepless nights, throw up down your, your back and diarrhea down your front. And you love this baby more than life itself. So if you want to love somebody more, whether it's a spouse or a child or your sister-in-law or your neighbor, or because we're supposed to love every Jew, no matter what and no matter who. So don't wait to feel love and give, give, and you'll, it will bring love. And sometimes that's the last person you feel like giving to. But the Torah says that giving leads to loving. And you see that from God. And the Almighty can't receive, right? God's got everything. He's got it all. What are you going to do? You're going to bring him his slippers? You're going to like do him any favors? Okay. That's the whole concept of monotheism. He can't receive. He has it all. He can only give. This whole world was created for us. And how do we know that all these relationships that God gives us, that he even loves us more, okay? You see, like he gives us the relationship to give us an inkling because we're human beings and we have needs. God has no needs. God has it all. And he can only give and everything is for our good. And the more you give, the more you love. God loves us. 
He loves us more than we love our children, more than our parents ever loved us. Again, he gives us these relationships. And we talked about kibbutz of aim and, and, and a mar marital relationship and, and parents to children, all these relationships in order to bring to the ultimate relationship, which was it's us and the almighty. And just to add to that incredible, those incredible three steps of focusing on the virtues, love is important to you. If what's important to you is important to me and giving, Rabbi Foreman has an excellent metaphor about that. We see it, the more complex the life form, the deeper the love. So you even see like whales have deep love, but you know, amoeba A, amoeba B don't have too much love. The human being of a of love for a, a parent to a child is unexplainable, inexplicable. And then God, even more complex, the love he has for us is, is out of this world. And with that incredible love that we get showered with and that we get to give to others is an unrelentless, a relentless or unrelenting loyalty to the people that we care about. And just to, to bring it back to Lori, your work, just for people listening that are, you know, on all across all levels of observance. Yes, we're all in and your life is all in you're, you're you live an all in life. And I think that is the most incredible um, way to put, you know, what success and mastery becomes, but also the little things that you do can make a huge difference. For example, for me, my family going to the village show at age 13, always having separate dishes, going to Jewish day school. Like even if you're not doing everything, you're doing so much. And that so much has a trickle down to the next generation, to the next generation. And so what you do with your spouse right now, yes, it's about being loyal to each other, but it's also the love you're creating between the generations and small things, small things that you do to maintain a Jewish life are going to go a very long way. And so there's so many ways to look at this D-Bear. We can't get to all of it, but we're just so thankful that you shared with, with us so much. And I think the last thing I want you to say about this, if you can, and sorry to to kind of um, have you share your big your big talk, you know, it, things that you like to talk about, but I love I love to hear it and people love to hear it. Last thing is the merger. What is what is marriage? Tell us. So this is really from Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg of Blessed Memory that he said marriage is not a partnership. We always say, oh, marriage is a partnership. No, he says marriage is a merger. What's the difference between a partnership and a merger? So a partnership is I've got the know-how, you've got the capital, and we make a partnership. I know what I want out of it, and you know what you want about it. But after a while, I got some capital, and now you got some know-how, and maybe we're, you're not getting what you want out of it, and we dissolve the partnership. There are many business partners who are not speaking to each other today. A merger is not my thing and your thing. It's our thing. We're one. Sometimes my husband's more out there and I'm more on the home front. Sometimes I'm more out there and he's on the home front. Sometimes he's better with that kid. And sometimes I'm better with that kid. We're in it together. We have different strengths. That's why opposites attract. Okay. And we were, it's a team. We're a team and we're going to do it together. We're one. So we talked about the definition of love and the three definitions, but really you start with what's the definition of marriage and marriage is oneness. Oneness it says before you're born, you're one soul, one neshama, and God splits you. Your half a soul, you go off into this world, and your other half, your zivuk or your soulmate, also goes off into this world. And under the chuppah, you become one, and you live your life and your marriage as one. And spoiler alert: in eternity, in the next world, you're with your spouse because the, it's it's a world of souls, and you live your life and your choices in marriage in this world are not just for now. This is for eternity. For a thousand generations and that's why no other gods no other powers no other force of relationship other than the two of you together thank you so much rebbits and lori for your time a pleasure and that's all for today thanks for taking the time to listen and we hope this episode has in some small way enriched your understanding of yourself others and god as you learn to integrate the big 10 into your life